you go out there, you're going to be a druggie, you're going to be a drunkard, you're going to be a homeless person. We are going to raise your child and keep him safe. And you almost, almost believe it. You almost think, I am choosing a life that is reckless, that is selfish, that is going to hurt my child. The lure of a new beginning there to kick off this Sound Jewish podcast at the start of a new Jewish year. I'm Raymond Simonson, and today's theme is In the Beginning, where we're going to bring you four different stories of beginnings, exploring them from different angles, from the creation of new identities to the start of a classic night out in Edgware, and from the search for family's truth and secrets to the first tastes of forbidden fruits. This is Sounds Jewish, brought to you by JW3 for The Guardian. So, to our first story. Now imagine this. You've grown up in a tight-knit community with no experience at all of the outside world and then suddenly in your 20s you get a taste of it. So how would it feel to start all over again with new rules, new friends and a new life altogether? Our reporter Joe Miller knows all about this. The primary school I went to offered no music lessons or sports and devoted less than two hours a day to English, maths and science combined. Many of my teachers didn't even speak English properly. This was London, in the 1990s. But my experience was not unique. I'm one of thousands brought up in the ultra-Orthodox or Haredi Jewish world, the most strict form of Judaism which exists in pockets around the globe. As a young teenager, I began to feel that the life led by those around me just wasn't for me, and I went in search of a new beginning. People like us are dismissively referred to as OTD, off the derech, meaning off the prescribed path, not the way I choose to see myself. But many years later, through the internet, I realized there were others with similar journeys to myself, mostly in America. Many who had left the Hasidic community in the US had taken to the blogosphere to write about their new lives. One of those was Frida Wiesel, whom I first read under a pseudonym. Frida, who is now a graduate and an accomplished cartoonist, has since become a friend. Our lives cross mainly online, but every now and then, I get to see her in person. The last time um, I met you, it was on the the leafy campus of Sarah Lawrence University um, in upstate New York. But um, it's a far cry from where you were brought up in Curiosiol. What's Curiosiol like? What is it? Curiosiol is actually in proximity, really close to Sarah Lawrence College. It's about an hour but it's radically different. It is a religious community, completely isolated. Only religious Jews live there. If I saw a non-Jew or someone who I thought was a non-Jew, which was anyone who wasn't wearing long dresses, um, I would be really frightened. I would say, agoy, agoy. And, you know, these few men, the few non-Jews who entered our lives, be it because they were mowing the lawn or because they were delivering the groceries, would frighten us. We would we would run and and hide. And I grew up on with in my family, very large family, lots of children, more than a dozen. <laughs> and um the spoken language is Yiddish. Education the education is in my opinion really poor. I think um anyone who's been through it will agree. Mostly you're prepared in the school system to enter a life of um, domestic responsibility, raise a family, be a good wife. Briefly, um, 
explain to me a little bit about um, how um, the, the shidduch matchmaking process works, because that's something I wasn't put through myself. Um, but um, what, what happens? You're, you're 18 or you're 17, and, and, and what's the process like? Actually, it began with me hearing my parents in their bedroom talking a little. Like, I knew I was that next in line because it goes by age, and when you're 18, you're next in line. That's the official phrase for being ready to be matched off. So my parents um, were in their room. They were talking. Uh, I was called in, and I was. they told me there was someone that we are talking about. That was code for, you're going to get engaged in two days. They, I remember putting on my brown suit. Um, it was a dress. It was a long jacket that came down to below my hips, almost to my thighs, um, and a mock brown mock turtleneck. And I went to meet his parents. Um, his parents and my parents chatted. I sat there really awkwardly and shyly and quietly, and smiled. And then they said. You know, they nodded their heads, they were in approval, and they called him over, and he came over. And we were given a couple of minutes, they emptied the room, they were like all smirking and smiling and giving the, ah, couple some time to, to chat. So we talked really formal, awkward, with interspersed with large... Um, bits of quiet and my mother peeked in and she was like smiling she, her eyes were glowing and she said you done, you done and we shook our heads and I was engaged Had Frida been born 20 years earlier her story would probably have followed a predictable path For many decades Haredi communities were almost perfectly protected societies there was little exposure to the outside world you'd have to actively seek out information which wasn't always readily available. Then came the internet, and everything changed. I started blogging when I was, I think, 21. I was already a mother, I was married. I was very intrigued by the idea that there were other people from our lifestyle who write, and I thought, oh, maybe I could do that too, I'll write also. Um, and I thought, maybe I can show people that Hasidic people are not as flat and as one-dimensional as people assume. I started to write and people started to comment and that's where things became complicated because the comments were usually negative deflections of the lifestyle like, oh really? You think that it is so sweet that you got married when you were so young? You think it's so quaint? Maybe it isn't. And these things got me to thinking a lot and they got me to um, looking at my little life with a baby, with um, my domestic chores, with my really pre-assigned role as the future mother of many children, as the wife of the man that was chosen for me with a completely new set of eyes. And once that, that barrier in your mind is broken, you begin thinking about all these possibilities. Did you start getting dissatisfied with the life you were leading? Yes, yes, I did. I began wanting particular things. I wanted to go to college. Um, I wanted to drive a car. Driving, which is forbidden for women only, was something that became 
essential. I needed that kind of liberty. But I think what I had asked, what I wanted most and what I envisioned as a better future was simply moving to a less religious community with my husband and my son. As soon as I brought it up, my whole life fell apart. Rabbis began contacting me. I got threatened with divorce. People began gossiping about me. Um, I began feeling increasingly isolated. Um, it was something that I was told unequivocally by several rabbis I spoke to. You cannot do that. You were born in this stringent community because God meant for you to be this degree of stringent. That means you have a holier soul. A large part of that is painting really bleak pictures of out there. You go out there, you're going to be a druggie, you're going to be a drunkard, you're going to be a homeless person. We are going to raise your child and keep him safe. And you almost, almost believe it. You almost think, I am choosing a life that is reckless, that is selfish, that is going to hurt my child. I really thought that my husband would stand by me no matter what. Something I learned is for some people, their faith and their tradition, they they come first. They come first be- before their their relationships. And that was a really rude awakening. I guess it's just something that was hard for me to understand. And you have no education. You have no way to support yourself financially. You're cut off for everyone except as much internet as you have and that you can go online and discuss things with people. Being isolated, being rejected by family, friends, everyone you love, it it just it's, it kills everything. It there's no way you can go on. We're humans. We need we need other people to support us. While Frida and I talk at her house in a leafy New York suburb, her seven year old son is happily playing on his iPad in the kitchen a scene that must have once seemed unimaginable to her. Sometimes it's just a marvelous realization that after everything, yes, I pay a fortune to educate my son. You know, Yes, I go to college myself. Yes, I, I, there are possibilities that are truly fulfilling to me. And sometimes we just have to shout that off a rooftop. We just can't help it. <laughs> you blogged recently about learning to ride your uh, your first bike at the age of 25. And I thought that was a really poignant image. Um, tell me a bit more about that. Well, I never knew how to ride a bike. I, I mean, you don't know how to ride a bike in the community because women aren't allowed to ride bikes. Not only that, boys aren't allowed to ride bikes either. I got a bike at Target. I got a bike for $99. And I just, I took it to the boardwalk and I... I was really tight. I just left the community. I didn't have a lot of money. I had this plan to take the $99 bike, ride it, and take it back to the store to Target and get my money back. <laughs> that <laughs> that was my scheme. And I tried to ride the bike for, I don't know, an hour. It was so scary. It was so wild. It was wild <laughs> that I crashed a couple of times and 
it got damaged a little and I got to keep the bike. I couldn't even give it back. So when I first got really into biking and I got all geared up and I got a road bike, I would sometimes pass by shops and see my reflection in the mirror and I'd be like, whoa, who's that? (laughs) I still sometimes mentally am someone else and and it takes me a minute to accept these these changes are real now i grew up in gants hill edgeware was a faraway place literally hundreds of kids lining the pavement i think the cool ones the beginning of a night out for me and 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 my teenage friends usually involved a bunch of people meeting up outside the 7-eleven store at gants hill but even then, even in, in that little part of East London and Essex, we knew about the legendary gatherings of teenage Jews and others at Edgware Station. I just remember chatting about nothing, or pretending to chat whilst looking at the cool ones and just being... My name's Georgie Tarn, and then there would obviously be rumours of who was going out with who. My name is Stephen Belasco. I didn't really know anyone in Edgware and I literally found it by accident. I just got off the bus, I was 14 years old, saw loads of kids milling about and everyone was laughing and having a good time and I discovered Edgware Station and it basically changed my whole life. On a Saturday, because uh, my parents' house was quite close to Edgware, so my friends, not not everyone lived in Edgware. I had friends in Elstree, Bournemouth, who would come to Edgware for the Saturday. So people used to come to my house about 7 o'clock. We'd all be getting ready, putting on the latest fashions. We all had perms and the most dreadful haircuts that were called a mullet. So you had the short on the top and then a long bit at the back. And a gold headband round my head, I don't know what I was thinking. Thank goodness I didn't go down the headband route that many of the fellow Edgewarians decided to wear and sort of looked like they'd escaped some sort of flash dance, a Saturday Night Fever um, film. We used to have cowboy boots, we used to have uh, tight jeans with white lines down the side, they were sticky finger jeans and that were all the rage. And, of course, you had to have your dicky belt. And because and I worked in the jeans shops, I had a dicky belt of every colour. So I must have had about 14 different dicky belts, and I was sort of well-known for that. You had to be at Edgeware Station for 8 o'clock. I don't know why, but that was the time everyone met. And I'm not joking, by half past 8, there would be anything up to 100 to 200 kids milling around the station. Like imagine a football league, so you'd have the Premier Becks and they were like the really cool kids that could smoke and chew gum and flick their hair all at once. And then as you looked onto the pavement, there'd be more all around the pavement and by Dino's Caf, which is really where everyone hanged out. Dino's was the number one place to be. Oh, and there was a guy called George who was unbelievably good-looking, you know, in that teenage way. He had sort of softly flicking hair and gorgeous eyes. And I think actually one of my friends got off with him, which was like an extraordinary accomplishment, and she became like a legend. After a while, everyone used to, you know, mix, and it would just be one massive crowd of people. And we'd be standing there talking for maybe an hour, hour and a half. I mean, it could be nine o'clock before we even went out. You know, we were just, Jewish people like talking and that's what we used to do, we used to chat. Because I'd lived 
outside of North London. I'd lived, I'd come from Northward where no Jews lived and I'd moved in. I was considered like a Sloan of Jewish people because I spoke to them really well. So I didn't have the Edgeware Becky voice and I was completely fascinated by all these kids that would go, sudden there'd be just a huge noise as people started either driving with their cars out the station or there'd be a mass exodus into the underground station to get on the train to get to the parties. Being allowed to go on the tube, you know, sort of edgeware, the beginning of the Northern Line, the suburbs and that idea of being allowed to be let into London, this mystery place, and being allowed on your own. We'd never really been on the trains before we were 14, so that was an adventure in itself. And the whole train would be full of maybe 100 people on the train. So it was a very good atmosphere. Everyone would be dancing about on the trains and messing about. I actually think I did spend an evening just literally travelling on the tube, you know, and actually really going nowhere, just to Golders Green, across the road to McDonald's, back on the train, back to Edgware, back on the bus home, and that was the evening. I was 14 years old when I started Edgware. I'm now 49 years old, and I'll take you back to February this year, uh, I was talking to some friends of mine on, on normal Facebook about Edgeware, and like I always have done all my life. And as we finished the conversation, it was getting very late. We, it was like one o'clock in the morning. We were tired. And my friend said, you know what? Why don't you just start a group up for a laugh? I said, what do you mean? They said, why don't you just start a group up? See if anyone joins. Maybe we get a few of our old friends we haven't seen for years. I said, OK. And we spent another half an hour trying to think up the name. And eventually we all agreed it would be called I Grew Up in Edgware Station. Again, it's transformed my life because within two weeks I had 2,500 people that joined. And it was an unbelievable sight. There was hundreds of people talking about Edgware. And it was just an amazing thing. I couldn't believe what I'd started. Listen, I'm, I'm happy today. I have a family. I'm very happy. But I'll never forget Edgware. It's, it's in my blood. New beginnings can happen in the strangest of ways and at the most unlikely times. So what if you were to discover a new truth, a new secret about your family, starting in the most unexpected place? Writer Thomas Harding has uncovered the fascinating and true story about his uncle's secret past. It all began with the funeral. It was December 2006 and my great uncle, Hans Alexander, had just died. My cousin Peter was giving the eulogy at Hoop Lane, Golders Green. Much was familiar. Hans growing up in a prominent Jewish family in 1920s Berlin, the family fleeing Nazi Germany in 1936. Hans joining the British Army at the start of the war, Hans in Belsen shortly after liberation. But then Peter said something unexpected, that my uncle Hans had been a Nazi hunter at the end of the war. Nazi war criminals? Was Uncle Hans really a Nazi hunter? I had known my great uncle all my life, 
but nobody had mentioned this. Even his own children hadn't heard of it. He was the person who organised the gag sent-off at the weddings, the horse and cart, the fire engines. He was the teller of tales, a prankster, a low-level banker. As children, we loved him because he told us dirty jokes. Could it really be true? Then Peter said something even more extraordinary. Uncle Hans had captured Rudolf Hoss, the commandant of Auschwitz. I was intrigued and a little puzzled. Was it really possible? I wanted to find out more. I asked my father if it was true, and he said possibly. He had heard something over the years, but he wasn't sure. I googled the name Rudolf Hoss and quickly learned that he's often confused with Rudolf Hess. Hitler's secretary, the man who flew in a plane to Scotland and later spent his last days in Spandau prison. Rudolf Hurst, in contrast, was the commandant of Auschwitz, the man who had established the use of Zyklon B and the crematoria, who later confessed to overseeing the murder of over two million Jews, Russians and Gypsies. Then I got lucky. A friend suggested I visit the Military Intelligence Museum in Chicksands, outside of London. After my ID was checked at the main gate, I was driven to a small bungalow at the back of the military base. Inside, I was greeted by a Major Edwards. He offered me a cup of milky tea and a couple of biscuits and pointed me towards a dusty blue folder on a desk. Inside were the papers relating to the arrest of Rudolf Huss, and towards the back I found a single page that described the arrest. On the top of the second page was the name H. H. Alexander, my uncle. Hans Hermann Alexander. Here it was, the first independent proof that my uncle was connected to the story. I was amazed, shocked. Shortly after my trip to the intelligence museum, I received a CD containing an interview with Hans from 1995. The interview was carried out by Herbert Levy, a member of the synagogue. Born in Berlin on the 6th of May 1917, attended school. There was Hans. Warm voice, German accent, charming, funny, familiar. The uncle I remembered growing up with, and here he was telling the story of the arrest of Huss. This fellow Huss, I was working on for weeks on end. There was no doubt in his voice. And eventually, we traced him down to a farm up five miles away from Denmark. And it came to the night when we decided we go in for it. I got my hold of a, a medical officer. And the driver and myself went into this farm where we expected him to be there. He had the wrong name. He went to no end of trouble to change his identity, change his papers, and so on. Anyhow, his false name, which we by that time had found out, uh, was written on the door where everybody had to be in by 11 o'clock at night. So after 11, went to the door, knocked at the door, and it so happened that in this farmyard. There were about fifty people staying, and this bloke Hurst happened to open the door. So before he knew what hit him, he had my pistol in his mouth so he couldn't bite on the the file of cyanide, and、uh, we stripped him, and the medical officer went through him and checked him and so on, and he had no file, no anything with him. We did not know that he had lost his poison file, so there was no more danger. Anyhow, he maintained he wasn't Rudolf Hurst. So I asked him for his wedding ring, and he said it doesn't come off the finger. I said, "Oh, that's all right. We cut it off." 
And then the ring was there, and in there was his initials, his wife's initial, and the date of his wedding. And he was still denying that he wasn't his. Anyhow, we took him, split naked, into a lorry, and took him to Heide, to the little prison there. And I left there two sergeants, and they took his statement. There it was. He had really done it, arrested Rudolf Huss, possibly the greatest mass murderer in history. A few minutes later, Hans talks very briefly about what happened to Huss after the arrest. He did say that he was extremely well treated by the British, with the exception of the arresting officer. Guilty. Over the years, I would play this clip over and over again. Guilty, he said. Guilty of what? Disobeying orders? Going too far? Putting the prisoner's life at risk? Or perhaps not going far enough? But he didn't kill Huss. Instead, Hans allowed his men to beat the commandant for ten minutes and then he stopped them before they went too far. This was one of those moments, a crossroads. Rudolf Huss survived the beating. He was interrogated by Hans and other British officers. He then appeared as a witness in Nuremberg, the detail and candour of his testimony changing the momentum of that trial. While waiting for his own trial in Poland, Huss wrote his autobiography, which became a central piece of evidence for the Holocaust. Soon after arresting Rudolf Huss, my great-uncle left the army and returned to Britain. He was naturalised and married his long-time girlfriend, Anne. He returned to his job as a banker, had a family. He helped build the synagogue his family had founded in northwest London. He was the person often stacking the chairs after everyone else had gone home. But he never spoke about the past or his role in the arrest of Rudolf Hoss, and we were told as children never to ask questions. Seven weeks after Hans died, his wife Anne passed away. Shortly afterwards, I visited their apartment in northwest London. His two daughters were busy packing boxes. I wandered into the living room where I'd been to so many parties and events over the years. Next to the sofa stood a side table. On this, I noticed a book. It was the autobiography of Rudolf Huss, the document that would not have existed but for Hans Alexander and the choices that he'd made 60 years before. I lifted the front cover, and on the first page, in grey pencil, was written my uncle's name, Hans. I like to think that after all the years of silence, this was his way of telling the world that he was the man responsible for the arrest of Rudolf Huss, the commandant of Auschwitz. And Thomas Harding will be speaking about his book, Hans and Rudolph, with James Harding at JW3 on October the 9th. See the website for more information. We Jews have got a lot of rules around food. Clear guidelines about what we should eat, what we can't eat, what we can eat, and what we can eat with what, before what, and after what. And we all know that rules make taboos. And we also know that where there are taboos, there are people looking to break them. Judy Battalion, the writer and comedian, felt compelled one day to take her very first bite 
of forbidden fruit. I remember quite clearly what I had, for at least 15 years, expected it to taste like. I had expected it to taste like sharp red and to burn the insides of my lips like a spicy vinegar. I had expected it to feel, between tongue and palate, layered and tough like muscle, to taste like saturated fleshy meat, meat filled with infused by and seared through with more meat, most meat, meta-meat soaked in a pungent barbecue sauce gone bad. But it didn't. Instead, it tasted warm and soft and strangely familiar. The story goes like this. Leah was the oldest and the first to get her license. Feeling terrible guilt about their messy divorce and abrupt emigrations, Leah's parents bought her a used Hyundai. It was a small gray hatchback without power steering, but it suited us just fine. It seems like Leah I and our accomplice Sarah spent full days and nights driving around and around Montreal in that car, windows rolled down, marveling at how great it felt to own the world. We were just then beginning to realize that, at 16, we knew, basically, everything. Though Leah, whose boyfriend was two years older, knew a little bit more. On this particular afternoon, we felt charged and sexy as we drove home from our Jewish high school, whose curriculum centered on Shtetlit, Zionist poetry, and Dachau. We were busy planning our lives as famous feminist writers and intellectuals and supermodels. Supermodels? Now that's a bit much. Sarah, sitting in the back, was the middle child in a family of five and kept things real. Laughing, Leah turned to me. Jude's? Yo! And from the corner of my eye, I saw she was smiling to herself, scheming. Jude's? We've been meaning to discuss this with you for a while now. We just don't understand why in the world, in the world, you still keep kosher. They giggled, smug. I began to recite in my mind the usual repertoire of reasons. Tradition, honor, tradition, family, tradition, the war. Only before I could utter them aloud, I took note of the sight. Three short Jewish girls, but smoking cigarettes, singing along to Salt and Peppa? I don't know. When Leah dropped me off at home, I entered my kitchen to find my Yiddish-speaking, fiddler-on-the-roof-loving family cooking up an amount of food adequate for several years of war, a major concern here in suburban Canada. My father was at the table, silently eating dinner, sternly planted among mounds of Russian whole wheat bagels, cheese danishes, and potato knishes. These bakery piles, piles that had always seemed to me like hot laundry, beckoning me to come roll in their warmth, now seemed like nothing more than a lipid boundary, separating me and my father, who, with his increasingly balding head, furrowed brow, and droopy chin, was looking a lot like a weird mix of the dour radical Quebecois politician Lucien Bouchard and Zero Mostel. I immediately called Leah to Peking Gardens! This time, Sarah sat in front and I in the back, and the two of them chauffeured me to the Cantonese den of sin. They rapped some lyrics, but I was quieter, considering what was to become of myself and my colon. I wanted to get the painful tasting done and over with. It took Leia hours to park. We sat down in the smoking section, of course, at its square table for four, the two of them opposing me, disciplinarians and cheerleaders. The gardens stood alone by the highway and had bare wooden walls and furniture covered in pink and then plastic tablecloths. 
Only a few tables were occupied, and mostly by mumbling grandparents. The girls' banter about boyfriends and best friends was spiked with purposely loud laughter, which overflowed through the large windows. I bobbed in and out of the conversation, and spent most of my energy extinguishing any germinating doubt. Then it began to happen. A large plastic menu was delivered to me, and I grabbed it up and opened it quickly, my hands shaking. I had opened menus in the past on special occasions, but had always directed my gaze immediately and without detour toward the vegetable tofu section. Now, now I was opening the menu as if I were opening a friend's diary filled with secret worlds and honest impressions. I set my eyes free and they roamed across the beige page, swimming through orange beefs and mango chickens, gliding among poo-poo platters and jumbo shrimps. For the first time ever, I could have any of it, anything that I chose, because I had chosen to be able to choose, with some gentle urging, of course. I was ecstatic yet dumbfounded by the excessive options. Leia wanted to order for me, but Sarah stopped her. Let her do it herself! While exotic fishes and mooshoes intrigued me, I wanted a typical and reliable deflowering, and I ordered the universal appetizer, the wonton soup. Waiting, my excitement mounted, and all six elbows perched on paper placemats, the three of us entered a new round of discussion. We were going to start our own magazine, and then a restaurant, and then a band, and then we would host our own salon. The soup arrived in a mock china bowl, three wontons and some floating onion bits in a yellow broth. The girls cheered as I leaned over to examine to sniff, and my glasses fogged from the rising steam. Blinded, stupefied, I slipped a wonton onto one of those special spoons with a flat bottom, the spoons from which I had only imagined my friends and my friends' parents and my parents' friends slurping. All eyes on me. I slipped the wonton in, and quickly, with my tongue, positioned the dumpling horizontally across my mouth, tasting only boiling wet. I braced myself, tongue buds erect, stomach prepared to pump extra coating, and then I bit. I bit down hard, but not too hard, into the soft dough and then the soft boiled meat. A perfect, full bite. And as I bit, I broke the dough, expelling the pork and its juice through my mouth. It was salty, so salty, and a little oniony, and dense like kosher mincemeat, but also smooth like a filter fish. And overall, the meat was a composite of familiar tastes and textures that I had never experienced together in this particular way. I was grimacing in concentration, and the girls were laughing loudly, proud of me, proud of themselves. And slowly, as the pork streamed through my digestive tract and fluently entered my bloodstream, I felt energized. I checked, all limbs still in place. I was myself, only more so bloated, floating. Cheers! The three of us tapped our water glasses. Leia dropped me off for a second time that day, and I avoided saying goodnight to my parents, as was becoming custom. I was not overwhelmed by guilt, but was instead perplexed by how easy, how simple it was to break, to bite through a boundary. Perhaps I knew, even then, that wontons were a very minor infraction compared to the skip satyrs, the forgotten fast, the faithless boyfriends, and other transgressions that would follow from this one afternoon as I continued to explore the menu, to read it like most people do. A little coda. Twenty years later, still a fan of Asian cuisine and plastic tablecloths, Judaism is on my mind more than ever. I have a daughter, and though she's only two, I spend my time thinking about making boundaries, which I'm finding are harder to erect than break down. I think we should keep a kosher home, I nervously proposed to my husband, who is also Jewish, but like me, cultural, secular, a lobster Jew. He was not impressed. 
Haven't you spent your adult life running away from your parents' endless sets of dishes and fish burger only rules, he asked. Hasn't negotiating or suffocating upbringing driven your work, your personality, or every single day? Yes, I answered, finally understanding. I wanted my daughter to have what I had, a strong sense of heritage, a firm cultural identity. I wanted her to have something to rebel against. So that's it from me, Raymond Simonson, and the Sound Jewish Podcast. I want to thank my producer, Sarah Peters. And just to remind you all, if you want to find out more about JW3's launch season events and activities, just click on the link on the Sounds Jewish blog. <laughs>